Welcome to episode six of Consultant Speak, the podcast series brought to you by the Russell Partnership Collection, Europe's leading food and technology consultancy. Founded in 1989, RPC has worked with over 600 clients across 30 countries in six continents. This podcast is for you if you work in or are interested in hospitality, major events, higher education, technology or well-being industries. Through this series, we will be talking about learning from life experiences, have guest speakers sharing their wisdom, and discuss important issues relevant to the food, technology, and wellness industries. Today, Professor David Russell, Chairman of the Russell Partnership Collection, will be in conversation with Alistair Warwick, Managing Director of Ascot Racecourse Limited. Hello, I'm David Russell. And let's start with a few words on the man that is Alistair Warwick. Many will have met him, many will know him, many will have worked for him. But my intel tells me a little more about Alistair. He graduated from Liverpool John Moores University with a 2-1 in law. His early career involved working for entrepreneurs at Chester Aintree and Hamilton racecourses before he became the Chief Operating Officer at Ascot in 2008. He's been there for 12 years. It's 2021. Now he is the MD of Ascot Racecourse and has been for the last number of months. And I am sure we are going to learn more about him this afternoon. With over 17 years of experience in racecourses. Alistair is known on the circuit as the racecourse guru. But before we establish why, let's explore Alistair before racing. Good afternoon, Alistair. Afternoon, David. So, Alistair, with over 17 years in racecourses, you're known as the racecourse guru. But before we do all of that, let's just explore a little about Alistair before racing. So how did life begin, Alistair? In its usual way, not as expected, David. Uh, From my point of view, uh, I was without a job coming out of university. um, And I went and worked for a friend of mine. Her father uh, was running an, an entrepreneur, running a number of businesses, and um, it wasn't how I'd imagined myself. I'd, having done a law degree, uh, I ended up working in a sheet metal firm, you know, uh, and that was not what was anticipated for me. Having said that, as always with life, it's one of those things where it proved to be an absolute, mm, what's the word, game changer for me. In reality, it gave me the experiences that I needed to do my job for the rest of my life. Uh, it taught me double entry bookkeeping, it taught me how to manage debt, it taught me how to uh, work with banks, it taught me to, about how important people were to business. It was all of those things. So as a grounding, it wasn't what I planned, but it's absolutely what I needed. Oh, that's brilliant. But how did you choose originally to go and do law? What was the driver right at the beginning of your career? The driver at the beginning of my career um, to choose law was was necessity, being honest. Um, I was supposed to be going to do English, uh, and I didn't get the grades I needed. 
So I ended up going to do law because fundamentally it was an area that I was interested in, trademark law, international law, uh, copyright patents, all of those kind of bits and pieces. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? We, we've had the greatest, uh, certainly from my behalf, the, the greatest opportunity and times together working together. And that law has been an implicit part of your your job in these sort of recent years in terms of bringing contracts together and understanding the way in which law works. So it's a great foundation. It's an amazing foundation because without it, you, you wouldn't understand the contract law, which means is, is the heart of all business. Uh, also, it makes it easier when you're negotiating because uh, you know the pitfalls that you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about school. I've only known you for 25 years and we've never talked about school. Did you ever go? <laughs> I did. So I was at school at a place called William Hume. Um, uh, Hume and Moss Side is on the outskirts of Manchester um, and not the uh, the most pleasant environment. Having said that, I went to a fantastic school uh, that taught me everything I needed to know. Yeah, fantastic. So you did your law. Eventually you uh, went into sheet metal working, which sounds brilliant, and then you moved into race courses. What was the... What was the trigger that made racecoursing work for you? Um, so I went to work on racecourses because I'd come out of working for an entrepreneur. And although I started in sheet metal, I had been doing um, factoring of dials for Virgin Trains. I had been doing serviced offices. I had been um, the sheet, doing the sheet metal work company. I'd installed uh, computerized systems. I'd done all of the things that you would expect me to do working as number two for an entrepreneur, which was anything that, that needed doing. So from my point of view, when the job came up at Chester Racecourse, it was more in the fact that actually there was work to be done as a business to actually modernize that, that, that business. And Chester's got a magnificent reputation, obviously founded on your amazing experience whilst you're there, but such a gorgeous race course set in such a fantastic setting what was it what was it like back in that day back in that day it's not that long ago <laughs> um i think the thing for me was it was a business that was in need of modernization you know all of the badges that were sold for the county stand were still handwritten into a ledger at that point in time so you know computerization hadn't occurred it was just time for modernization um and for me that was what i found so interesting about the role uh, it's lovely. Then a move on to Hamilton and Aintree, more race courses in the in the bunch in the basket. What were the what were the drivers again of that move? What did you learn from those venues? Oh, well, did I learn? I, the, the reality is, I learned an awful lot at Aintree because it was just post the evacuation. Um, so that may lead me into you know detailed conversations with police, security, terrorism. Um, things I'd never anticipated when I did my law degree or worked for the entrepreneur. Um, from there, it was also the vision for hospitality. Um, because again, back in those days, hospitality was just food you received. Yes. Whilst you were at an event, which was the main reason you were there. Um, and so I had the freedom within that role to actually try and develop that hospitality. Um, and that was really exciting for me. Ah, fantastic. So Hamilton, Scotland, if I'm not mistaken, different type of culture, different type of race course to your first kickoff in terms of Chester. And 
Chester, yes, very different. Uh, uh, Liverpool and Aintree, not so different in reality. Glasgow's you know, a great place with great people. Uh, I had a fantastic time once I could be understood anyway. I think the reality for me was, was it's, it's all about the people, as it has been for me throughout all of my business career. Chester was amazing, uh, but different. But Liverpool is all about the people. Glasgow is all about the people. And actually, that's what made it for me. You know, making things happen with people you enjoy working with is is what life is about. Yeah, how lovely. I, I do remember a lovely moment I certainly was able to share with you when I was quite operational at Ascot working with you. And a gentleman came up to you, this must have been years later, from Hamilton. And still, you know, there was an amazing connection between the pair of you. I don't know if you can remember, Alistair, but he was obviously a treasured friend and colleague at the time. Can you remember the experience? Yes, I think you know, good people stick with you throughout your life, uh, whatever your role and wherever you move to. Um, and I think it's really important that actually as you develop, yeah, you keep your roots and you keep involved with everybody on your journey because actually you should share your journey in that way. Hence the reason I'm doing this podcast today. Yeah, and that's a lovely way of sharing sharing knowledge with us. So we appreciate it. 17 years is a long time in race coursing. Um, there must have been some amazing lessons. What do you think the biggest lesson for you, Alistair, has been before we talk about Ascot? So perhaps before we got to that through those first three courses was it was it the variety of customers was it the the evolution of the business at that time what were the big what were the big moments i think it was the evolution into an actual industry from being a sport where it was all about the bloodstock and quite heavily about the tweed suit you know it, okay. it transformed itself into an actual really strong business with actual real groundings in the P&L, the margins, and not just the love of the sport. And I think as media rights has come through and all of the other uh, income streams have started to come through, that's been really important because we wouldn't have continued to survive as the industry we were at that point in time. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And so interesting as the whole sporting arena has moved from pure sport into entertainment, food has moved from a fueling experience into a dining experience. So each of these businesses, hand in hand, have evolved through that period of time. I think you're right, but you have to remember, and it's something that when you're running the business, you that at your heart you are a sport, and and actually that is what matters to a lot of your core supporters. You know, so you can do things that are right for the business, provide and be have given the freedom to do that, provided you look after the sport. You know, we talk about the fact that actually, you know, our job is is there just to be custodians. You know, Royal Ascot has been there for three hundred years. It will outlive me. Yes, by a long stretch, my job is just to be a custodian for the period of time where where I'm in charge. And that, I think, is absolutely true of all sports. You know, rugby will continue, cricket will continue. Our job is to just do the best for the sport in the time that we're involved with it. Yeah, what, what a lovely statement. And that's sort of a natural segue into your appointment in 2008 
to Ascot Racecourse and some of the numbers there are always really interesting me. You talk about 300 years of history founded in 1711, now the name of your um, food and beverage business. I think the first Royal Ascot was in 1768, 180-acre site, 26 race days, 600,000 visitors, 10 million, I think, the last time I looked at prize money. What an amazing facility that is. So you moved to Alistair in 2008. What was Ascot in 2008? Uh, in 2008, we were post-redevelopment. We'd have built a new grandstand and spent $240 million at the time uh, on a brand new grandstand, which we'd opened uh, with quite a few challenges. Um, and it was a business which was needing to reconnect with its customers at that point in time because there was some disillusionment having spent $240 million as to what had been provided. Um, so at, from my role, and I was working closely with Chief, Chief Executive at the time, Charles Barnett, was to actually re-engage with all the stakeholders and actually bring it back to what did they want? What did they want from Royal Ascot? What did they believe Royal Ascot meant to them? rather than what had happened, which was an architect's vision uh, of what that should be. Yeah, and how amazing. I mean, physically as a building, it's quite quite a building, isn't it? But operationally, it also has quite challenging constraints because of the open nature of the stand, uh, the length of the stand, and you and I having walked along that many, many times, you challenging me about the amazing food, of course, on offer at the time. But it's a, it was a moment in Ascot's history, wasn't it, that investment? It was. But again, you reflect back on it because that was 2006 and we're now in 2021. Ascot is 300 years old. Okay. So in reality, whilst it was significant at the time, it's, it's a blip in history. You know? um, I think from my point of view, We've got a building that's architecturally stunning, that's a landmark, that's iconic. The fact that I'd like to have a discussion with the architect about why we need a seven-story atrium running through every part of the building is an operational difficulty, not actually the output from the building itself, which is, you know, it is beautiful and it's been grown into by the customers. Yeah. Surely the atrium's purpose was so all of the teams of staff prior to Royal Ascot were in a position to be able to have a dance around the balconies. Absolutely. Um, uh, but again, as we head towards COP26, you know, you do worry about a seven-storey atrium with a canvas roof above it and where the heat goes. Yes. So the world has moved on since it was, re it was rebuilt and redeveloped. Um, actually very significantly, and you would never do those things nowadays right. just because actually in a sustainable world, yeah, you know, that, that is limiting. Yeah. And those of you who are listening, the, my, my small comment about dancing before Royal Ascot actually opens is that there is a tradition that the race course chooses a contemporary song at the time that each of the teams develop a dance and perform this dance around the various balconies and uh, there is a prize and it's very motivational and the first time I witnessed it it was quite touching to see about two and a half thousand food and beverage staff from memory dancing to um, I'm the entertainer or some amazing song that was at, 
at the most amazing time. Uh, can you remember some of the songs, Alistair? No, that's not <laughs> all your thing than mine, David. <laughs> so uh, it was great to see. It was fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about food and food at Ascot, its role over the period of time that you and I have known it. Perhaps let's just talk food. So at the time of 2000 and, well, it must have been 2015, um, I think now, we decided to put food at the heart of our race day experience, and particularly around Royal Ascot. And that was a change from where it's been prior to that, where food was just, it was part of the day, but it wasn't a re reason for being there. So we wanted to move to put customer food and customer service as actually a prime requirement to the experience of the customer. You know, we are deemed to be a premium event. You know, we want to be the world's best horse racing event. And therefore for us, that meant actually moving away from the traditional model of, you know, I can make plenty of margin. Yes. If I serve the right food and serve it quickly to actually being a premium product making sure we charge the right amount for that premium product, but ensuring the customer gets the best experience, whether it be through the people or the food. And why we now have, I think, at last count of, of, of 2019, we had eight Michelin stars um, chefing for us, you know, which is a very different place to where we were you know, six, seven years ago. Yeah, indeed. And all amazing food experiences through that time. The, the, the challenges, I suppose, with Ascot very much, particularly during Royal Ascot, will be the breadth and depth of customer base coupled with huge volume. So I know the first time I witnessed it, I was just, my breath was taken away at the scale of the operation. So there aren't many businesses in the food business that are that large scale and that complex, which must bring its own challenges and excitement in terms of taking that on board it's amazing the first time we did it it was absolutely a challenge um and there is the archetypal thing where some of the chefs want to be the best they can be and they don't whilst they understand how to do service in a restaurant for 80 covers 180 covers all sitting at the same time is a different thing that requires it. And it's quite difficult to get 180 souffles to rise at exactly the same moment. Uh, so I remember those parts of that, that learning experience. But that's where I actually saw our industry uh, of, of the events industry starting to help transform some of the chefs to understand a different model of working. Because historically, you know, this was the not the early, but the mid stages of TV chefing, you know, and it was still all about the restaurant. Yeah. Now you can go to major events globally and there will be top chefs chefing. And some of that is actually down to them knowing and understanding and being excited by, you know, being able to, to do large scale events and put 160 plates of Michelin star food down within 20 minutes. And that's, a very different skill set, but one which absolutely has now become a standard part of the chefing package, um, which is great. Uh, but it wouldn't have happened without people like us going through the process, you know, and our 
head chef, Gemma Amor, working with you know, the likes of Raymond Blanc and actually merging the Michelin star qualities with actually this is how you have to handle a, a volume play. Um, and that has been great for the industry. Yeah, and I think it's been great also for the Michelin star chefs and working with Raymond and Phil Howard and the likes. You know, it's a new skill that basically we've all learnt, whether it's managing, overseeing, or the practical delivery as the guys do, that it wasn't tried. It was pretty groundbreaking, Alistair, when it started, wasn't it? It was, it was not necessarily done. And that meant that the teams who were delivering it, whether it be Raymond or James, actually had to learn new ways of producing their food. Yes, whilst also you know, making sure Raymond still gets to cut the micro herbs that he wants to to dress the top of it, uh, of it and it still be right and, and authentic for Raymond because he's a true believer in, in actually all the things he does and that what he produces is of the right quality. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a great investment in those individuals and it's continuing investment, but it's one that has really taken Ascot to being uh, a place where no other race course probably in the world is. So I congratulate you perfectly on being the groundbreaker in that, which, uh, which is great news. Now, what about the future? We've just come to the end. Well, we're coming through a pandemic with its own challenges. What about the future of food in terms of the various styles from your casual restaurants, formal restaurants, public bars, public cafes, etc.? Where do you see the future, Alistair, of food? I think customers are so much more knowledgeable and care so much more than they used to about what's presented to them. So sustainability um, and how that's achieved for a mass scale event is, is actually where some of the groundbreaking thought is going to have to be because, you know, it's very difficult to get, you know, as much smoked salmon as, as we need. Yeah. Um, in a sustainable way uh, from a local source, you know, ideally within 25 miles when you're basically in Berkshire. You know, all of these are challenges that will be faced by the industry. So the question for me is how do we, we do sustainable food in a way that minimizes footprint, that minimizes, but is still authentic to what we want to be because we are a premier event. You know, we are a lifestyle choice. And we have to be true to that as well. So I think that's where some of the challenges faced. I think the other thing is, you know, I, I found it very interesting, even in retail food. You know, we push and push and try and give choice and try and do, you know, you know 20% of our, our menus, you know, plant-based. And the things that still sell, yes, to the British people are fish and chips, burgers, you know, and, and, and the likes. So... Again, one of the things I think we need to, to challenge ourselves with and, and all of the out, large outside events need to challenge is how do we actually change some of the behaviours for healthier options uh, for individuals and actually make the food taste so good that that's what they want. And we've begun some of that and we've begun, absolutely begun some of that journey at Ascot. Um, but I think it's something that actually as an industry, we probably need to address more. You, know, you go and do a tour around the, 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 the Soho 
and there's really good stuff in Soho. You know, you go and tour around some of the other uh, areas in the country, and it's not quite there because it's you know it has to spread, and it's got to become a much more conscious decision for the public to actually eat healthier. And reality is, if they're on a day out, you know, and they're you know drinking champagne and pims, they don't always want to be healthy. <laughs> quite right, quite right. Oh, that's lovely to hear. And so one thing to talk about is taste buds, I think. And many of you listening will will know that your taste buds in your mouth actually change. They are regenerated every six weeks of your life. So if we're going to change people's uh, tastes and behaviours, uh, all remember that it'll only take six weeks, Alistair, to completely take them from fish and chips to uh, uh, organic pestos. Wouldn't that be amazing? doesn't really work in life, does it? It doesn't, but I think it's interesting because um, I have a family and a young family. We went to, to Ikea only yesterday um, to go and find a new desk. But the reality was when we had lunch, you know, the menu on the main boards were um, vegetarian meatballs as well as Swedish meatballs and plant-based meatballs. You know, choice is what's important and actually good tasting choice and it becoming mainstream. So... The more of those kind of things that happen, the more I think that food will move in that direction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is definitely a process of knowledge transfer as well as experience and training and evolution. And even my training sort of back back in the day in terms of being a chef was so fundamentally different to what it would have needed to be today in terms of that experience. Large, rich sauces, lots of butter and cream, and flour in sources, you know, those days are well, well gone, uh, gratefully, gratefully. But what a change that we're witnessing and we will continue to witness. That's made equally different, difficult by the challenges of the number of people in the industry. So we're all witnessing massive shortages of talent and resource that, that must be impacting the business for you. And giving you some headaches and sleepless nights? I think it's, it is, but it's also the opportunity. So the opportunity to train and try and find the next generation, which I think is absolutely what we're going to have to focus on, which is, okay, we've got a shortage now that that will last however long it lasts. But the reality is how do we actually make sure that we find the next generation of service staff, that we find the next generation of chefs, that actually they want to be inspired by an industry which could be a 12-hour day and weekends, you know, and what's the benefit for them in that? So I think absolutely it's a challenge at the moment, but I see it as a, a huge opportunity to actually turn up the dial on recruitment and actually sell the positivity of our industry, which, I mean, I work on a race course. You know, I work in an entirely green environment and I get to make 600,000 people a year extremely happy. Yeah, that is a very satisfying job. You, know, you can't beat it if that's what you like. So it's the question is getting those messages out to the other people who are passionate about actually service and making people happy well it's lovely as ever listening to your energy alistair's known for his energy and his drive and also your innovation alistair you've got a great reputation of not being happy with what you've done and wanting to improve it every time you do it so in terms of 
innovations that perhaps have come to light at Ascot, which perhaps are the most you're proud of in terms of the way they have come to life? I think for me, uh, I prefer the word passion to drive. I have an absolute passion for what I do. And I think that actually engaging and getting other people to engage with that passion is the thing I found most exciting. Uh, and that is through innovation. This is through training academies that haven't existed before. It is through the use of technology, you know, uh, because in, in the younger generations, they love technology. Yeah. And the last 18 months, two years has taught me that actually technology has leapt forward, not strolled forward, leapt forward in that period of time to the point where we are currently rewriting our tech strategy because in 18 months, we've achieved what we were planning to achieve in, in the next four to five years. You know, it is moving so fast and so dynamically. But that's great. That just means you know, we've got to set our next set of goals. Um, so for us, you know, innovation and technology is going to become central to our industry, uh, especially with the challenged labor force. Uh, so I think for us, the future is all about innovation. Lovely. That's great. It should be a future bright for you then, Alistair, in that way. There you go. Uh, now, let's have a little conversation about you and consultants. It would be a shame not to explore that topic, as I've had the privilege, pain and suffering of working as a consultant under you, for you and with you. So let, let's just have a have a conversation about our our working time together and your choices about consultants. So I'd love to hear it. I suppose my journey through consultancy has, has changed. As David refers to, I was slightly sceptical in the beginning as to the value that could be added. Um, but I think what I've learned over the time, not just working with RP, but with um, a number of different consultancies, provided you actually know what you want, then actually working with a, a consultant can get you there quicker than actually working there just with your organic team because it's about perspective. You know, I travel a lot. I, I, you, know, you go to the NFL Super Bowl, you learn something. You go to the Phoenix Open in Arizona, you learn something. You go to the Brooklyn Nets Stadium, you know, uh, which is owned by Beyonce and Jay-Z, you, know, you learn, learn something. There's lots to learn out there. And for me, that's what consultants can come sometimes bring rather than you have to go and visit all these places. Um, and so particularly if you're looking to set strategy in a reasonable time frame in the next six months, you haven't got time to journey the world and get some of those experiences. And that's when you need a consultant that's actually seen some of those and knows how some of those could apply to your business type. So that's the other thing I would say. You've got to actually... You can't just bring in a consultant to do a very brief piece of work without them actually understanding your business because they can't apply their knowledge unless they actually understand how your business really functions and operates. So the reason that uh, David and I have worked well and been successful uh, as a relationship is because actually David understands my business. And I know if I have a conversation with him about it, he will understand the nuances that the impacts of some of the decisions and questions I'm asking will have. That's really important, which is why actually long-term consultancy arrangements are extremely useful, provided you can get on with the individuals. 
I always enjoy this conversation, Alistair, so, so much. The uh, Our time together, however, was nearly cut short by my uh, amazingly inability initially to impress you to appoint us into the first role that you asked us to do. I'm sure you remember. I obviously do, David. So from my point of view, we were looking for somebody to talk to us about how we renegotiate a contract uh, with the incumbent. Um, and you came in to talk to me about how the global food and Olympic food strategy was where we should be going at, at Ascot Racecourse. Um, so that was around the alignment of my expectations versus your expectations during that initial conversations, which led to you not getting the job. Uh, but, you know, again, it, what it shows is you've got to make sure that the people you're coming to pitch to you understand what's expected of them. Yeah, and I think, you know, cards on the table us, that, that was a long time ago, but it certainly also taught us to do work on understanding your proposed client rather than coming in with what might have been seen as a prescriptive solution. And I know we did learn from that because the next time you graciously called and said there might be something interesting here for you, uh, I hope our approach was a little bit different. Absolutely, David. Uh, I'm trying to think how it started. Was it realistically about thinking about the strategic direction or was it at the moment where we... We were there was going through a transition in the business, and you needed some interim support. I can't quite remember, Alistair, how it started. So for me, it was the transition. Uh, I was in the in the role um, and didn't st understand enough around how the margin business worked, and so I know I didn't have that skill set. Uh, I knew you did. And therefore, that's what led to the phone call, which was actually it was knowledge I didn't have in a set of circumstances where we'd led on food strategy, not on profitability. And actually, we now needed to focus on the profitability because it needed to deliver the numbers. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember. Uh, and what's so lovely about our relationship is it's been one of working together in consulting terms, but it's also been one of me directly reporting to Alistair. So for the best part of 18 months, I had the privilege of running the food and beverage at Ascot Racecourse under the control and direction of Alistair. And what an in interesting time that was for us together, Alistair. Um, my dear colleague, Michelle, who looks after everything to do with me, in fact, took the call from Alistair one day who said, just want to have a little chat with Alistair about... Uh, with David um, about being able to give us some help and support. And Michelle being Michelle said, well, that would be fine. What would you like, Alistair? And Alistair said, oh, just two days a week to run all the food and beverage operations. Michelle said yes, and the rest is history, as they say. So it was an interesting time, Alistair, one I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. So now let's talk a little bit about Ascot and the future because, as we know, there always needs to be a next five-year plan. There needs to be perspective of what we've all been through for the last couple of years. Where, where do you see the future? What are the future challenges? What can we expect of Ascot when we look back in 2030 
and say that's what happened between 2021 and 2030. This is why I love a consultant. Yes, they're future visioning the next 10 years already. Um, I think we can't tell what 10 years time looks like at this moment in time. I think the post-COVID world is going to force a huge amount of change on our industry in a very short period of time. So I think it will become very dynamic, very fluid, and there will have to be change. And I think the reason being is, you know, if it continues as it is at the moment, you know, as the supply chain is challenged, the labor market's challenged, the costs are challenged, you know, all of those issues. And that's before you get to the thing that matters, which is the customer. And actually, where does the customer sit? And where, what's the customer's view of the world? You know, we, you know, we're in a market where you know, there's every chance that, that actually inflation is going to start again. And we've just come out of a period where inflation has been at zero. You know, it's all very well and good for us to plan and, and want to invest and do all of those things. The key to this will be deciding and working and understanding what the customer wants to do in the next 10 years. Um, and I think that's going to be the key for it. All right. And of course, Ascot's got those 300 years of experience. I'm sure that history has built perhaps one of the world's strongest brands. Presumably, you can leverage the power of the brand. We can. I mean, we are an iconic sporting event in, in the UK and now globally in certain markets, the US, Hong Kong, you know, South Africa, some of those kind of uh, countries. We absolutely can. Um, but at our heart, we have to deliver the exemplary in-venue experience that actually has created that brand in the first place, whether it be the best racing in the world, the best experience in the world. You know, to be the best, you've got to be the best. Um, and actually, once we've secured that, then actually we're fairly comfortable that the customer will will follow. And do you think, Alistair, there will also be a change in the way potentially food and beverage partners who you are working with will have to operate? And by that I mean, could there be sense in large-scale venues coming together as a group to share resources, share talent in a way perhaps that might have been spoken about in the past but has certainly never really cross-company ever been delivered? I think it's absolutely something that, that we've got to look at. I think at the moment where the labour shortages are so tight, um, it's too competitive a marketplace. But I believe that once actually things stabilise a little bit, actually that's where the economies will probably come from. Yeah. Well, it's really, really interesting to see where the market goes. And I feel as if we've had an amazing 300 years of history and we're about to embark on another century of amazing change and innovation. So I'd like to say a very big thank you for all of your words. Alistair, thoroughly enjoyed, as ever, talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you to everybody listening. And thank you, Alistair, for dedicating the time to pass on your thoughts and knowledge to all of our listeners. Pleasure, David. Thank you. 
We started by hearing about Alistair's life before Ascot's, which involves studying law before working for an entrepreneur. He talked about some early business learning in the area of finance and double-entry accounting. Alistair then spoke about how his career working with horse racing started. This began at Chester Racecourse, then Aintree, followed by Hamilton Park. He is now Managing Director for Ascot Racecourse. We heard how the racing industry has evolved during this time and how working across all these locations has provided Alistair with the skills required to now manage the Royal Racecourse at Ascot. Alistair discussed his passion for understanding consumer trends and then devising methods to deliver world-class customer experiences. Food and beverage delivery and innovation forms a large part of this. This is an area where he has driven forward development through staff service, food quality, and by working in partnership with world-class Michelin star chefs. He also spoke about his experience of working with consultants to drive forward business objectives. He spoke of the value this has produced for the businesses he has managed. Thank you all for listening to episode six of Consultants Speak. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating as this really helps our podcast be found by others just like you. We hope you found this podcast to be informative, educational, and that it has made a positive impact to your day. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.